Welcome to the Redemption Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. Um, for those of you who do not know, my name is Blake Sellers. I'm an elder candidate here at Redemption Hill Church. Uh, my wife and I, um, and now our two children, um, have been with Redemption Hill for almost eight years now. Uh, it's been quite some time. Uh, but even though we've been a part of Redemption's Hill, um, I have not been up here in quite some time. Uh, when Garrett was up here a few weeks ago, he had shared that, you know, it's been crazy since the last time he was up here. And now weeks have passed and more craziness has happened since he's been up here. Um, and it's definitely to have, it's definitely strange to have a camera looking at me. So welcome, all of you here on YouTube and Facebook. Um, as I said, it's been uh, quite a while since I've been up here, and to be exact, it's been 371 days since I was up here last. Yeah. Uh, I was preaching our opening message of Advent in 2019. Uh, this week I will be preaching our final message in Advent and also our final message in 2020. And my goodness, a lot has changed in the past 53 weeks. Over the past year, we have been barraged with uncertainty after uncertainty. We have been so inundated with crisis and lost death and tragedy that has turned many of us numb. And just during the past weeks, our country has experienced more deaths due to COVID-19 in a single day than all who died in some terrorist attacks that we've lived through. Many are saying that this COVID-19 pandemic will be the identifying or defining event for a generation, much like the 9-11 attacks were for my generation and the lunar landing and Great Depressions were for generations before us. This has been a year that's been in need of a strong message. Messages like TJ preached the last two weeks on hope and joy as we've covered Advent And at times it feels like our culture's distrust and paranoia, apathy, and loneliness is just too much to overcome. For many of you, you have felt exactly that. A distrust, a paranoia, an apathy, a loneliness that seems too much to overcome. Hope and joy have seemingly been smothered by this moment. And the smothering of your hope and joy has led you and has led us to running to other things which offer false promises of refuge and of rest and of escape. But if I'm honest, that last part doesn't actually seem all that different from other years, from 2019, 18, 17, or any that came before it. We are always wooed by things that promise rest, security, and peace. The world around us will always be hard at work to snuff out our faith in everything that comes with it. We might say that we have placed our security in Christ and then here comes a a global illness which sweeps the world and after a year, science still only partly understands it. You may say that your hope is in the cross of Christ and him crucified and then your access to that community that galvanizes your faith, it feels like part of your access to that community has been taken away. And you feel exhausted and overwhelmed by everything that's going on. You may have said that you find your rest in the Lord who lays you down in green pastures, who renews your soul. But here's the temptation of a drink or a show or a purchase that has no bottom, 
and no end to put, but it does have a promise of rest and relaxation, but you never find it. Friends, these are the lies that are told to us every single day and have been told to humanity since the beginning. It's not just 2020, and it's not just murder hornets or COVID-19 or lost jobs or volatile stock market or any of the things that may have convinced you it's just this one event that's leading you to have a difficult year. A global pandemic, no, is not as run-of-the-mill as most years, as most things that we normally experience. But what I'm talking about is our, our response to crisis and uncertainty. Crisis and uncertainty are not just particular to 2020. It's not just the things that are happening now, this year, which have led us into a darkness of heart that we're experiencing. We go through this every year. We can point to some cultural moment in that year that has made our faith just a little bit more difficult than the year before. Friends, there will always be something drawing us away. And I hope and pray that we can see the end of of this something in sight. But I also hope and pray that that I would have faith and that you would have faith to battle well for him right now in the midst of this current moment so that when the next something comes, I won't fight so poorly. That the next time I won't give up so easily. And that the next time I will not hurt or ignore those around me. Friends, now is the time to press into your Savior as he is gentle and gracious and wants only your good for you especially during this time, is the time to share your heart, share your feelings, share your need for your Savior with your MC, your DNA, a friend, or a spouse. Now is not the time to give up, but is the time to allow the Savior to pour his refreshment into your soul. Now is this time to cease chasing after these things that have promised satisfaction but won't satisfy, and instead be satisfied in the finished work of Christ. And that's just my intro this morning. Like I said, it's been a long time since I've been up here in front of you. And I guess I just needed to, to say that to, to you all. I love you all, and I have been in that moment myself. So Advent. This morning, we will be wrapping up our series through Advent and being reminded of the eager anticipation for the coming of Christ's love. That's why we observe the Advent season as an individual or maybe in your MC or your DNA with your family unit or here collectively as a church body. Advent is this time that we purposely dedicate to the practice of remembering and anticipating. Anticipation of the coming of the Christmas holiday and the joy and excitement that it brings, but more importantly, remembrance and joy-filled celebration of the moment that God the Son came to the rescue of his people. He came to live among us, to die instead of us, and he raised himself out of death, conquering sin for us. And so we look towards, we not only look back to remember this amazing day and time, but we also looked forward to the hope-inducing promise of a day when all tears will be wiped away and joy and gladness and worship will be on our lips for eternity. And that will be a glorious day. But during the Christmas season, and especially for Christmas Day, we remember a great and historic moment that was. 
a moment that was promised since the beginning, a moment planned before it was even obvious that it was needed, a moment that God's people were reminded of generation after generation after generation. Imagine an event with more hype than that. The Israelites, God's people, their whole culture was set up as a reminder of the coming of a savior that would come. And it was set up as a reminder of their need for that coming savior. Paul tells us that the commandments were created as a means to remind the people that they weren't perfect, that they couldn't uphold the law. The commandments pointed to their need for a perfect one who would follow it perfectly and who would fulfill the law for them. And when God's people would forget about the promised Savior who had not yet come, God would send a messenger to remind the people of that coming Savior. And when the people would begin to act and live in a way that there wasn't a Savior coming at all, God would change their circumstance. He would change what was happening to remind the people of their need for him. Can you imagine longing for a single event, a single day, a single person that consistently for that long that it's ingrained in your culture? A single event that you anticipated for, that your generations anticipated for 500, 600, 700 years? That's the anticipation with which Jesus' arrival came with. Over the past couple of weeks, TJ preached on the hope and joy that came with Jesus' arrival a hope and joy that was worth all of those generations of anticipation, a hope and joy that is worth us striving to live for now, and a hope and joy which will be permanent and all-encompassing upon Jesus' second coming, the second advent. In our third and final message in this series, I will be preaching about love, a love that was promised, a love that was anticipated with Jesus' first coming, and a love that came on that first Christmas that Jesus brought with his perfect embodiment of love, how we can strive toward and live in that same love today and the coming permanent and all-encompassing love that we can look forward to, a love worth anticipating. I'm gonna pray. God, I thank you for your word that you have brought to us in the form of your son. God, a word that you gave to us written down in the form of the Bible. God, that not only tells of the coming of your son, the promise and arrival of the son, but also the implications of your son on our heart. God, the promise that he will come to us to not only live physically in our world, but also live in our lives and our hearts. God, I pray this morning for uh, the power to change us to make us more like you. God, I pray that your word and your Holy Spirit would do that and work in us this morning. (laughs) Amen. Love is a very complicated thing. That might be an understatement. It's a word that we have so many different uses and meanings for, the word love. In its roots in the Greek language, there are six different category or words for love. And four of them occur most often, four primary different loves. The first that we'll talk about today is philia, which is a friendship type of love. Secondly is eros, which is a romantic love, commonly known as being in love. 
And thirdly is storge, which describes the type of love or affection felt between parents and children, almost an inherent type of love. And if we think about it, while there may be some overlap between philia, eros, or storge, friends and family and those who we are romantically attached to, we can see, though, how distinct and different they are as well. Now, I'm not sure which of these three types of love applies to our feelings towards tacos and football, but one thing is clear, there is something lacking with these types of love as our, our love with tacos and football. To be clear, these types of love are fantastic and beautiful and are God-honoring. And while we can pretty easily identify with these types of love, we have likely felt them for others, have likely felt others feel these types of love toward us. We have undoubtedly seen them depicted in books and poetry, music and movies. We have also seen and experienced what these types of love are lacking the promise of permanency. We have probably all experienced the love of a friend whose bond has been broken, trust compromised, a friendship that is no more. Maybe you have experienced the feeling of being in love. As strong and all-consuming as romance is, you have likely felt or seen it wane and maybe witnessed falling out of love. And many of you have experienced the love or affection between family members, this inherent, inherited almost love that seems to be designed for parents and children, grandparents and grandchildren and between siblings. But for some of us, unfortunately, that love too has been broken by deceit, abuse, or hatred. Philia, Eros, and Storge, these types of love are incredible and they are part of our human experience, but they aren't perfect and they have and will let us down. A minute ago, I had mentioned that there was a fourth type of love. And in his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis states that the previous three loves are natural ones, but this fourth love is a supernatural love. And thankfully, that is the type of love that won't let us down. The Greek word for this type of love is agape. Agape is the word that describes an unfailing, unconditional God love. Agape love is one that disregards circumstance and does not rely on reciprocation. That is quite different from the type of love we engage in. The Jesus Storybook Bible says that God's love for us is a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Always and forever love is definitely not the love that I feel from football and tacos. <laughs> You see, God depicted his never stopping love for us in the Garden of Eden at the beginning of history after Adam and Eve cho chose self-sufficiency over obedience. When they created their own rules to live by and ignored God's rules. When their first act of treason was still fresh on their lips, the taste of that fruit on their tongues, God showed his love in clothing them and covering up their shame and in promising them a savior. God showed his agape love again in the story of Joseph in Genesis chapters 37 through 42 after Joseph's brother's hatred for him drove them to sell him into slavery. God provided miraculous opportunity for Joseph to be raised a second in command from slavery to prince. 
which led to the saving of the first family of Israel from famine and set them in a position providing honor and prominence even in the midst of betrayal and hatred. An exodus after God's people had been placed into slavery after having lived in Egypt for 400 years, God delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh by a show of power over nature and a strength that guided them into their own land where they could set up a sovereign nation. God showed his love to his people over and over again and again. God provided his provision and love for his people. And even though among those very stories, God's people proved themselves unworthy of his love, God never relented. At times, many times, God's people did not reciprocate love. God never gave up. Even when God's people began worshiping lesser gods from other culture, even requiring human sacrifice, God intervened, sent a prophet to tear down the altars to these gods and remind the people of his love for them, their need for a one true God and their coming Messiah. God's love is unrelenting. Going back to our talk about anticipation in the Advent season from the beginning, there's not much use in anticipating something ordinary. Something ordinary cannot capture the hope and imagination of a people for thousands or in hundreds of years. Something ordinary is not worth celebrating weekly or annually. Something ordinary is not worth staking your whole life on. Maybe that's where we struggle the most. We have a lot of difficulty committing our time, energy, and effort on something that we cannot mentally grasp, physically grasp, or understand. I know I do. We have a lot of difficulty committing our time, energy, and effort to something outside of the ordinary. But unfortunately, what we find is that when we live for the hope and anticipation of the ordinary, we are quickly disappointed when it comes, deflated, and sometimes depressed. Friends, God's people in the Old Testament needed to be drawn back to the love of God when they had been lured away by the natural, ordinary things that the world had to offer outside of him. And we do too. We need to be reminded of the extraordinary love of God. When we put our stock solely in the natural loves, when we rely solely on the love of friendship, family, tacos, or romantic relationship, we will be and have been at the very least disappointed and at worst left hurt, alone, afraid, and distrusting. Don't misunderstand me. The natural loves are, are loves that we should engage in. I'm not saying that we should avoid them altogether. To the contrary, we should be seeking to press into each of these types of love. Commit to loving our families, our significant others, our coworkers, friends, and neighbors, and love them sacrificially. Jesus even taught his disciples specifically in John chapter 13, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus commands his disciples and commands us to love and have love for one another and to even do it in the same way that he himself did, which led to him being crucified on a cross. Please continue to commit to loving others, to love those around you. 
But when we expect them to love us back in the same way, when we don't have agape love for them, when our love for them depends on reciprocity, they will fail us. They cannot deliver. Only God can. The natural loves, they're just a shadow. They're just a glimpse, a sliver of what perfect supernatural love is. Agape love, Jesus' love for us, cannot disappoint. It is, the ol- it is only when we stop believing it or when we forget its love that it even borders on lackluster. And that's just our perception. It didn't go anywhere. We do. Our main verse for today is going to be in Ephesians chapter 3. In this verse, Paul urges us not to forget to not stop believing the love of God. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love. And to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Paul is urging us to remember and to understand a love that will fill us with the fullness of God, that will satisfy, which will fulfill us. can't be the natural loves that do that. And friends, this is the love that God wants us to be drawn today, a type of love that motivated the very Son of God, the Son of the Most High King, to forego all of the glory of the heavens for a time, to step out of his life of absolute deserved esteem and into a life of poverty, a perfect love that knowing the high price it would cost him deemed it worth everything he would endure for you and for me. If we look back to the commercialized Christmas depiction of the nativity, it shares this cute scene with sheep and stable, horses and hay. And as you picture it and really try to engross yourself in that environment, your mind might even play some tricks on you. You might imagine or remember the smell of whatever your favorite candle is to light around the holiday season, maybe pine or cinnamon, since that we associate with the Christmas season. But this is not comparable to the scene set in the true nativity. Let us remember what livestock smells like. It's not the aroma of flannel or wildberry forests, whatever those candles really are. It is the stench of manure and matted straw, wet fur combined with no climate control. And if you've never been in a stable, think back to a trip to Petco or PetSmart and then ratchet that up to 11. The Christmas story says that they were in a stable because there was no room for them in the inn. Imagine a king to come down and there was no room for him. Can you imagine a king even settling for a night in a motel, much less living in a livestock pen? The Prince of Heaven did not deserve this, but he chose this. Motivated for love for us, he chose to lay down what he deserved so that he could take what we deserve. 
Isaiah chapter 53 contains a foretelling of Jesus' earthly appearance, and it says this, he didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. This is the image of the Savior come to earth, Jesus walking in this world. But where else do we have descriptions of what Jesus looked like? Well, one is his kingly description and revelation. Revelation chapter one, John describes seeing Jesus in a vision as dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it, as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp double-edged sword, sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. Is there anything at all comparable from those two images from Isaiah and Revelation? And it's not just his physical appearance, one coming from uh, having eyes like a fiery flame, going to another where he had an appearance, he had no appearance that we should desire him. It's not just his physical appearances, it's the vast differences in, in life. He had the worship of angels and of all of creation at his disposal on one hand. And he had despisement and shame on the other. But the Bible says that Jesus was pleased to make the sacrifice. Hebrews 12, 2 says, For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I'm going to read that again. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What drove him to do this? Joy. Joy drove him to lay down everything. Joy drove him to take up a cross and die a terrible death. But what does this joy look like? What is the end result looking, what does it look like that Jesus would, would choose to love and do that for us? What did he see in the end result it would possibly make him look at us and say, I want to do that for them. Jesus knew the end. Revelation chapter 7 says this. This is John giving his account of what he sees in a vision, which will occur after the second coming of Christ. After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and along with the elders and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and strength and power be to our God forever and ever. Amen. They washed their robes, and their robes were made white in the blood of the Lamb. 
For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's what Jesus knew beforehand. That's what he wanted, wants us to experience. He has such love for us, knowing that he will provide great, great um, union with us. That fear and pain and death will no longer be a part of the human experience, but only worship and gladness and joy. He was willing to endure anything. John three sixteen and 17 says, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. These three passages in Hebrews, in John, and Revelation, they tell us a lot about the love of God. In John 3, it tells us that God loves us so much that he gave us his most prized possession, his son to save the world so that those who would believe in his son would be in union with God forever. Hebrews 12, Jesus, the son of God, was so committed to the final outcome of this rescue mission that he considered it pure joy to be sacrificed for you and for me. To be beaten and crucified on a cross, he considered that pure joy for you and for me. Considered it pure joy to, en to endure the shame of your sin and my sin so that we wouldn't have to pay for it. Considered it joy to lay aside all of his earned kingly privilege for a time because he knew that once the plan was complete, once the rescue mission had been accomplished, there would be a multitude from every nation more than anyone could number. A multitude whose shame was removed a multitude whose penalty had been paid, a multitude who is clothed in a righteousness they did not earn, whose tears were wiped away, who would no longer hunger and thirst. Friends, God lo God's love for us is worth remembering. It's a love worth living for and it's a love worth anticipating. His love is a love that will not disappoint, a love that will not hurt you, a love that will not be yanked from your grasp. This morning, I urge you to seek to know his love, as Paul writes in Hebrews, because the love of God is not far away from you. Maybe you haven't felt his love in a long time. Maybe you have forgotten just how good his love is. Maybe instead of pursuing to know and understand the height and depth and width of the love of God, you have been pursuing other loves. And I urge you to stop. Whatever escapes you have been running to that you have hoped will bring you acceptance and fulfillment, stop running there. I urge you because I know what it's like. I know what it is like to run toward things that promise love and joy and hope and acceptance and status and security, and I'm sure you do too. We can run to both silly things and serious things in this pursuit. We can run to alcohol and food, fantasy football and fitness, binge watching and pornography, relationships and the fantasy of relationships, our jobs or the promise of future jobs, 
All of these things have likely vied for your attention, your affection, your intimacy in the past or present. I know they have for me. If you have run or are running to any of those loves, it will leave you wanting more. It will never leave you satisfied. It will lead you into forgetting the great love that God has for you. Over the past couple of years, I have shared with my missional community pretty regularly my own personal struggle with seeing God's love, with seeing God as good, with seeing his great love as this thing that he designed for me to actively take part in. I was instead living out my faith in a mostly intellectual sense. I was content on relying on what I knew about God and struggled with having any desire to having relationship with him. I was content on relying on past experiences with God instead of seeking to have any new experiences with him. I would say things like, I just don't have the desire right now. I don't have the desire to read his word or pray to him. Come to think of it, it was sounding like someone who had fallen out of love. A few weeks ago, I shared with my MC that I was really tired of saying those same things over and over again. I knew that things needed to change, but I, I didn't know how to change them or I didn't want to change them. <laughs> my MC encouraged me to think of things that I did have relationship with and how I chose to relate to them. Really what they were asking me is how I was choosing to grow more and more in love with these other things. And of course the natural course of action when you name loves like fantasy sports or golf or alcohol is then delete all of your apps and just quit cold turkey. So for the past two weeks, I've not swung a golf club. I've not obsessively sought to know all of the possible news in the NFL. I'm not in the fantasy playoffs, so it's fine. I haven't had a drink of an adult beverage, and I haven't listened to a single podcast, which if any of you know me, that's something. And what happened? Well, for a few days, I felt awesome. Clear-minded, not obsessing over things that don't matter. Who knew that I obsessed over so many things that don't matter? I read my Bible, listened to an audio Bible, prayed and worshiped at home. It was, it was amazing. But after a few days, a curious thing happened. I started researching nutrition and healthy eating habits. I started logging every calorie with the help of my fitness pal. I picked up running again and working out over my lunch hour. Physical health is a great thing to pursue, right? My heart wanted to create new loves. These new loves, or as my wife at accurately describes them, obsessions, were good and healthy things, but they wanted all of me. They wanted all of my time, all of my mental capacity, and that clarity that I had felt in those few days before these new loves were created was gone. It felt a little foggier. The Bible reading began to diminish again, and it was a reminder that I do not have enough personal gumption to only to conjure up love for God on my own. That I needed the help of a savior more than I needed my own ability. I'm sure many of you have felt that exact, exact same cycle too. Our hearts so desperately want to love something that we can almost create it out of nothing. Create affection towards something that 10 minutes ago maybe we had never heard of. I share my story not to draw attention to myself. Obviously, it was not a success. 
It was a success. God is good. But I share it to ask a question, several questions really. Have you felt the love of God recently? Have you felt the enormity of the sacrifice that he paid for you? Have you even made space for that love to enter your life recently? Or have you packed your life and mind so full of other things that you haven't given it a second thought? Maybe you are exhausted by it all, but you're unsure how to stop it or what to do, or maybe you don't even have the desire to stop it. Jesus pleads with us. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon, take my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, in order to take up one yoke, we need to take off another. Friends, in order to remember the love of God, we need to choose to forget maybe some other loves. In order to anticipate the coming love that, that, we can pro- that we can anticipate the promise of in the future, we need to stop pursuing other loves that, that only promise us dissatisfaction and hurt. Band, you can come back up. Friends, I want to encourage you, I want to encourage all of us to fight to remember. And I want to encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to help you. This morning we will take communion and communion in itself is an act of remembrance. It's an act of anticipation even. There are single serve communion cups in the entrance if you didn't grab one and here at Redemption's Hill, all are welcome to receive communion. We just ask that your trust be in Jesus for the salvation of your sins. Otherwise they really don't taste good. But 1 Corinthians 11 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The act of taking communion is an act of remembrance and anticipation. And friends, I want to encourage us all to remember the promised Son of God who came into this broken world to mend and rescue and freely give life. Remember the sacrifice of the King who knew your unrighteousness and gave you his perfect righteousness. Remember the Lamb of God whose death you and I deserved, but a death he joyfully accepted. And remember the victory over sin and death that he claimed by raising from the dead, rendering sin and death powerless over you. Remember the promise of a coming perfect kingdom where sin and death will be no more. You can stand and we'll pray. Father, I, I thank you for your love. And it's oftentimes not a love that we can easily comprehend. But God, I pray that you would help us to want to comprehend it. For those of us who 
can't remember the last time that we wanted your love because we've relied on other loves so much. God, I just pray that, that we would come before you. God, we would confess running to those other loves and that we would ask for your help. God, we would ask for your help to see your love as a love worth striving towards. God, for those of us who um, are walking in love with you, God, I pray that you would encourage us and help us to grow in that. God, that it would be a love that, as with those that we care most for, we just can't help but share it with other people, for other, to want other people to have it, to see it, to experience it as well. God, I pray that this Christmas season would be an opportunity to remember your love, to walk in your love and to and anticipate a coming better love. Amen. Let's worship.